0: Would y'all remember when you were younger and your parents let you stay at your, se- at your house by yourself for the first time ever? Anybody remember that? Group participation? Okay, I, I remember that too. That probably felt like a huge moment of trust, right? Your parents are finally trusting you to stay at home by yourself. There was a huge weight of responsibility with that. Or how about when you got a little bit older and you were in high school and your parents would go away for the weekend... They'd probably tell you something like, no, don't have a party while I'm gone. No, no keggers, nothing like that. Don't be drinking alcohol. You better honor your curfew. You probably heard something along those lines. And if you broke those rules and they came home and the house was trashed and you smelled like alcohol and Miss Betty had already called them next door and ratted you out for coming home after midnight, you were probably standing before your parents when they got home, trembling and full of fear. Because what your parents were wanting from us... It was not only responsibility, but what they were wanting was integrity. That the way that you lived in their absence would be the same level of maturity and expectation as when you were in their presence. But why do I bring that up? Because as Paul is writing to the Philippians, he uses this verbiage. He had spent some time with these people, a lot of time. He had invested in them. He had discipled them. And now he's in prison, not in their presence, but he still holds them to that same level of expectation as he would if he were with them in person, just like our parents held us to that same level of expectation. But here's the thing. Paul's exhortation had way more spiritual application than than us just breaking our curfew. Paul is telling them to develop their walk with Christ so that God's purpose for their life can be fulfilled. And he starts out saying in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which I think people tremble with fear just reading this verse because we have this misunderstanding of it. I thought, my salvation was free. I'm supposed to do something with it? I'm, I'm supposed to be afraid? Wait, I don't, I don't understand what this is saying. Because I think for so long, many of us, we have read this verse and we've read it with such a negative mindset. We filtered a verse like this through our interactions and our punishments of our parents. And we view God as just this man upstairs who's just waiting for us to mess up so he can walk down those stairs and pun, punish us uh, with his wrath. When in reality, he's a loving father who just wants us to love him so much and to honor him so much with our lives. That every decision that we make in life, we stop first and we seek what God's will and God's plan for our life is. Because we want our decisions to please our father. Because it's not a fear that punishes, it's a fear that honors. That I'm not, that I'm, I'm fearing and I'm trembling everything that I do because I honor my Father. Every time I get up here and preach, I tremble with fear because I don't wanna misspeak. I don't wanna do anything that would, that would upset my Heavenly Father. I wanna speak His truth and His love so that many people will know His love and His grace and His mercy and His compassion so that they can experience Him the way that I have. So, yes, your salvation was a free gift, but that word trembling that He uses, Tromos. Tromos means one who distrusts his, uh, distrusts his ability to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. What's that mean? That we know that God wants us to live holy lives, set apart, but we also understand and realize that we still sin, we still mess up. Because 1 John 1, 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus is the only one that never sinned. And one of the most beautiful things about our faith and how you and I can know if we've experienced salvation is that when you sin, you have this disdain and this unsettling inside of you because you know that what just happened did not glorify your, uh, didn't glorify your father in heaven. And so it makes you upset and you're doing everything that you can uh, to try and change your habits and to become more like Christ and you're not happy with your sin. Paul had been with these Philippians He had probably held them uh, accountable and he had probably taught them to have integrity. Just like when your parents started trusting you to be out at the house all alone and expected you to have some integrity. They expected you not to throw a party. They expected you not to have people over without permission. All of those things. They expected you have the same uh, integrity with the responsibility that they entrusted you with. And now, even as Paul is in prison, he's telling the Philippians, "Keep that same integrity that you had when I was with you. Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling." because check out this next part. In verse 13, he says, "For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose." There's a connection between these two thoughts that Paul has wrote here. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a comma. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul is telling them to work out the very thing that God worked in them. So you and I, we, we work out what God has worked in us, salvation. Because God has given us the gift of salvation, therefore we work it out what he has put in us. I'll, I'll put it to you like this. All of us are born with the free gift of muscles, right? Right? Some people naturally have bigger muscles than other people, but all of us have the ability to work out and grow our muscles. Now, in the same similar fashion, everyone who has received salvation from the Lord now has to work out their faith in order to build their faith. And hear me when I say this. This verse right here does not mean that you have to work to earn your salvation. God gives that freely to anybody that asks. For it is by grace, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of Of God not by works why so that none of us can boast in ourselves that we saved ourselves so when you receive that free gift you now have to do something with that gift because that honors the one that gave you the gift of salvation if someone gave you a gift tomorrow something that you had been wanting for a really 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 long time they give you the gift you open it you're not gonna open it and go hey man I finally got this thing that I've been needing and wanting okay, that's it. Toss it to the side. You, you wouldn't do that. You're going to use it because it would be a slap in the face to discard the gift that the person gave you and just, uh, and just count it as meaningless. And when we get saved, that's just the start of a whole new life for us as a Christian. The Bible refers to it as being a babe in Christ because salvation is just the starting line for us as Christians. You have all these new perspectives, you have all these new beliefs, you have all these new convictions, and you're going through a process, here's a churchy word for you, called sanctification, which is just a real fancy word for just saying making yourself set apart. It's the process of us growing from the first stage of surrendering to God and being a babe in Christ to conforming our lives to look more like Christ as we mature in Christ. And everything in between, the renewing of our mind, the uh, taking off of the old, the putting on of the new, all that life change and growth, that is sanctification. It's a process. God works in us our salvation. We then work it out. I'll put it to you like this. Salvation is a gift but growth is a process. You receive salvation, but you don't just stay there. You grow in Christ. You mature. Salvation is the gift. Sanctification is the process that we go through. You working out your salvation is a process that I have to go through, that you have to go through in order for all of us to grow. But here's the thing. People work out their muscles to increase their performance or maybe just to feel better about themselves, to maybe lose some weight. But that's not why we as Christians work out our salvation. Working out our salvation is not about performance. It's about a partnership with God. That we're not just trying to perform and put on this show for everybody else and show how good of a Christian are. But that we are trying to partner with God and advance his kingdom. We've been talking about partnering together this entire series. And here Paul is saying, some of you Christians, some of you Philippians, you guys are new believers and you're babes in Christ. And you need to work out the very thing that God has worked in you. For verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Everything that we do, church, is in a response of what God has done on the inside of us. James 2 tells us, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. You've got faith in God. I just, I've got deeds. And he says, show me your faith without deeds then, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds that it's because Jesus did this for me and his love and his grace was extended to me, I now do these things to glorify him and help other people know him. He's reinforcing that because of what God worked in us, we should have that motivation to uh, show others our faith by our activity. That I don't just sit and do nothing with my faith, but I live it out and I do something with it because that honors my Father. And in our text today, Paul is saying this exact same thing, that It's not the earning of God's love and salvation. It's the expressing of that love and salvation by working it out. That because I've experienced his love and salvation, my desires in life, they're not the same as they used to be. I now desire to do his will, to fulfill his good purpose, to live my life worthy of the gospel that I say that I believe. He changed my world, so that changes my work in the world. Amen? Y'all getting anything out of this? This, this has been punching me in the face all week. So if it hurts your toes, I promise, all my toes are black and blue. So how does Paul instruct us to do this? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and find joy in it like our series says? How do we fulfill his good purpose? Well, I'm about to give you the answer. Are you ready, church? Everybody say ready. Here it is, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Hey, it's not my words, it's the Bible. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. As hilarious as that is, and I heard a couple of y'all chuckle at that. How do we shine like stars in the sky? How do we do do that? How do we shine our light? He doesn't say to fast and to beat your body into submission. He doesn't say to sell your car and, and walk barefoot to work every day so you can tell everybody that you're suffering for Jesus. If you want to stand out as a light in this dark world, he says, do everything in your life without grumbling or arguing. Stop complaining. Talk about a plot twist. I was reading this, I was like, come on, Paul, I I was expecting something more motivational. I was expecting something more inspirational. Instead, all you are is here telling me, stop being a grumpy pants. (laughs) Me and Pastor Mark, as we were talking about this sermon and this passage, we were cracking up this week because the word, the Greek word that Paul uses for grumbling is pronounced gonguzmo. Everybody say it, say "Gonguzmo." gonguzmo. You hear that and you say it and you chuckle but it actually doesn't have any meaning at all. It's like, pow. It doesn't really have a meaning, but you know what it means. So back then when people were grumbling, you'd walk up to somebody and they'd just go, guzmo. Some of you do that every day at work. You didn't even know you spoke Greek. You're just going, guzmo. And Paul's like, stop doing that. And yeah, we can laugh about that because it sounds funny until we actually try it. Go into work tomorrow and see if you can go the whole day without complaining about anything or arguing with somebody. Some of you are like, well, I guess I'm just going to go to work tomorrow. I'm going to work in silence because that place is miserable. Those people are miserable. All I can do is grumble and complain and argue with people because I don't like them. I think if our culture had its own language, we'd probably call it complaining. Let's think about it. We even meet new people this way. Just picture this you're at an event. Imagine you're at an event. You've probably been here You're standing around a group of people that you really don't know and you don't have any connections with and you're standing there Real awkward and you see this guy y'all make awkward eye contact and you're like I don't know what I'm gonna say to this guy You know what you're gonna say to me. So you're trying to think yourself. How do I find some common ground with this person? So you just say this What about that heat man, it's pretty terrible I can't wait till it's colder in December You are probably the same person that in January was looking like this meme right here that I found so, so funny. Probably in January going, please turn the thermostat to 90 and just leave me alone. I don't want to talk to nobody. I'm freezing cold. I can't wait for it to be warm. And now that it's warm, you're going, I can't wait for it to be cold. Like you just can't be happy. You grumble and complain about everything because we just do that naturally. But I challenge you, go into work tomorrow. Sit in your car before you get out. Just go. (sighs) Gather all your willpower and say, today I will not complain. I'm not going to grumble. And as soon as you walk into work and Karen starts complaining about the temperature of the air conditioner, say, yes, but this coffee is yummy. You should try some. It'll warm your soul. You might not complain as much. She's going to look at you like you are so weird and awkward and you're going to feel so weird and you're going to feel like you're not yourself because you're not normally like that. But I promise you, if you do that, you will feel better and you'll say, that felt pretty good. I wasn't negative for once in my life. I read an article this week that said the average person complains 30 times a week. 30 times. That ain't even talking about the people that complain double that. That's just the average. That same article gave complaining this definition. Complaining is when we blame others or life instead of accepting the situation and taking responsibility to make things better. That one hurt me. Think about that. We complain about things and we offer no kind of solutions at all. And because we complain so much without any solutions, people decide they don't want to be around that kind of negativity. And you're left all alone, probably complaining that you're all alone. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, this is really hard to swallow. This passage is tough. I'm not finding a whole lot of joy in it. Uh, Come on. Everybody complains. Everybody does it. And if you think that, I would agree with you. Yes, Everybody does complain, and that's the problem. None of us are standing out. None of us are looking different. We don't sound different. We sound like the rest of the world. You don't stand out like a light shining in the sky for people to follow. Therefore, if you're a Christian and all you do is grumble, you're losing your influence that God has given you to share your light with other people. Nobody wants to be known as a person that walks into the room and steals everybody's joy. We should want to be people that walk into the room and we help other people find joy because we have joy in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we make somebody else's life just a little bit better because we're shining our light in their dark perspective. That when everyone else is complaining, we are the ones that speak some life and speak some positivity into the situation. That we lift up situations instead of dragging them down. That when changes start to happen at work, you just flow with it and tell your boss, man, I know this might change my job. I know that some things that I do. My responsibilities might change, but I'm really excited about this. I'm not going to complain about things changing around here. I'm excited. How can I help? What can I do? How do I lift you up as the leader? Do that instead of grumbling and complaining. And to that point, do y'all want some insider information here for here at the church? Are y'all sure? I'll, I'll thank only some people over here. Anybody want some insider information? Okay. Well, there's like a 99% chance that some things around here are going to change. It's just this. We've got new leadership. We have an amazing pastor who cares so much about this church with he has fresh vision that is applicable to all of us in here. So things might change according to the vision that God has given him. And I know people are typically not fond of change, but change is okay. Everybody say it's okay. Maybe the way that Sunday mornings look change. Maybe the way we do worship changes. Our core values might change. There might be different people on stage here speaking. It might not just be Pastor Mark. It might not just me. You, that's why we've been doing these joy moments. So other people can get up here and you get some other faces because these things are healthy and they're beneficial. So go ahead and predecide now that when you start to notice some changes around here that you're not going to grumble. Oh, I don't like that song. Grumble, grumble, grumble. I don't like that name. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Why'd they let that person preach today? Go Guzmo. Don't do that. Don't do it. Listen, change can be uncomfortable, but it's often the catalyst for growth and transformation. For us to go and grow into where God is taking us as a church, some things have to change. And that change might make us uncomfortable for just a little bit. But that's where we're going to see growth and real life transformation for people. We just have to embrace it with faith and trust in God's guiding hand. Because here's the principle, grumbling and arguing doesn't keep us in motion, it hinders our progress. It literally stops the forward motion progress of what God is trying to do when all we do is grumble and argue and talk about our preferences. There are so many ways that our church can grow. And I'm not talking numerically. Just go ahead and take numerically and throw it in the back of your mind we can grow in our discipleship we can grow in our love for others we can grow in our stewardship we can grow in up in our development of people all that growth happens when there is an amazing vision that I cannot wait for Pastor Mark to share with you all because God has such amazing plans for this church and we don't want this house to be full of pride and preferences we want this house to be full of love and selflessness and when we do that we're living out what God was telling or what Paul was telling the Philippians would be a byproduct of us not grumbling and complaining and arguing. In verse 15, he says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky that you and I, that we are to become blameless and pure, that we are to live holy, set apart lives. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. That word holy means set apart. And I've been talking about sanctification all morning. That's when the Holy Spirit is working inside us to will and to act according to his good purpose, just as Paul had described it. We are meant to be set apart from the world for the world. It's not an, ooh, look, I'm better than you. I'm different than you. Look how bright my light shines. It's not like that. It's like, look, I have this light for you to share with you, to help lead you out of the darkness. This light that Jesus has given to me, I want you to receive that same light so then you can go and tell other people about the life changing transformation that Jesus Jesus did in your life, and you can share your light with them, and they can have the light of Jesus. That's how we should be living our life. And going back to verse 15, when he said blameless and pure, that word pure means unmixed. That we act like what we say we act like. That we don't have this Sunday morning personality, and then we're a different person on Monday through Saturday. That I don't come into church on Sunday mornings and look the part and do the part and lift my hands when the band hits the bridge, because that's my favorite part of the song, but that when I walk out those double doors on Sunday, that I'm worshiping God Monday through Saturday by not grumbling, that I'm worshiping God by caring for other people, that I'm being a light in a warped and crooked generation. I told the students this last Wednesday that we cannot be passionate in what we say and passive in what we do that we can't say we love God and love people and then complain and argue in every situation and every conversation that we have. That we can't say we love God and love people yet never do anything to serve people. Mark 10:45 said that Jesus came not to be served but to serve. That's different than what the culture teaches us. That matches up with what Scripture was saying, what people were saying about Jesus. That's him being active in what he says he's passionate about. Therefore, if you and I are going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to live our life different than the world lives it. Our lives should not be full of arguing and complaining. Our life should be full of joy and love, and our hearts should be so full of both of those things that it just overflows from our lives. And then then, church, we will be shining like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life. In verse 16, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul just starts talking about himself. He's like, if you guys can just live your life worthy of the gospel and live your life without grumbling and complaining, then guess what? Then my life won't have been wasted. So guess what that means for us, church? That if you guys will just take these messages and take these teachings that you hear and apply them to your life and really live them out, that when me and Pastor Mark die, or when Jesus returns, our lives will not have been meaningless, like it won't been. Wasted, But we will be able to boast on the day of Christ that this house, this house of God was not just trying to achieve some behavioral modifications, but that our lives were changed because our hearts were changed. That because Jesus said out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth will speak. So if all you're doing is grumbling and complaining and arguing with people, you've probably got a heart problem. If all you do is cuss words fly out of your mouth, you've probably got a heart word and you need to submit that to Jesus. Jesus. And then Paul does something weird. I struggled with understanding this next verse all week long. If I'm being honest with you, I honestly told Pastor Mark that I thought it was super random and really dumb that Paul put this in here. Is that okay to say as a pastor? I just struggled with it. I struggle too. He says in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. I was like, what on earth does that mean, Paul? I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. But as I studied this and I read up on this, it started to make more sense. It started to fire me up. It it was building my faith. Because see, what Paul was doing here was giving the Philippians some Old Testament imagery. He was referring to himself as a drink offering. Because in the Old Testament, at the end of the day, after everybody brought their doves and their lambs to be sacrificed as an offering to the Lord, the priest, at the end of the day, he would come with a full glass of wine and he would pour it. Over the entire sacrifice as the final offering. And in Paul's life, as he's writing this to the Philippians, he felt as if his life was being poured out as an act of worship on behalf of all of the people that he served. So much so that even if he died in prison, he wasn't going to grumble or complain, but he would have joy in all of it because his life had been poured out in service to God, that he served others so much that it did not matter what happened to him. If he was in prison, if he died, if he died, In prison, he knew it was going to glorify God. And because of that, he was going to pour out his life in service to God and to people until he took his last breath. He even told Timothy that in 2 Timothy at the end of his life, just moments before he died. In verse 4, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, Timothy. And the time of my departure, which is his death, is near. From his conversion to his death, Paul was pouring out his life in service to other people and let me speak to some people in the room let me talk to the older generation in the room you may feel like you're old you feel like you have nothing to offer but i promise you that you do do not stop pouring from your cup do not stop emptying yourself for this younger generation invest in them believe in them pour out your life in them. Titus 2 says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You older men and you older women, you have been through life. You've experienced life, and if you still have breath in your lungs today, you still have a mission. You still have to pour out what God has poured into you. Young people in the room, start pouring out your life right now. Don't just wait until later. Commit fully to how God wants to use you now in this life, at this age that you're at. Don't just settle for going through the motions at a nine-to-five job. Don't wait until you're older because tomorrow is not promised. Let this older example, like Titus says, be an example of how you should live your life and model that. And if anything, if nothing else, look at Jesus. Jesus is our message. Jesus is always going to be the perfect example for how we should live our life. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying. As he falls on his face, he tells God this in verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This cup that Jesus was referring to was uh, symbolizing the suffering and sacrifice that he was about to endure for you. That's why Paul wrote uh, in last week's passages in verse 6 and 7, Jesus, existing in the form of God, counted not being on equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptied his cup, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, emptying out his life as a sacrifice for all mankind to the point that he died a gruesome death on the cross for you. He emptied himself for you and for me. He was that sacrificial drink offering that we needed. And Paul understood that Jesus did that for mankind and that Jesus did that for Paul. But the difference between Paul and Jesus is this. Jesus poured out his life to save the world. Paul can't do that. Paul poured out his life to serve the world. Therefore, he was, telling, uh, he was willing to live his life just as Jesus did. He was willing to die for the gospel. He was willing to pour out his life for the service of other people. He was willing to die in prison if that meant other people were going to get saved. And because of that, he said he had joy. He did not grumble about his situation. He rejoiced with the Philippians. And he told them, hey, you guys, you also should be rejoicing with me. Be glad. It doesn't bother me that I'm in prison. I'm pouring out my life in prison. The whole passage. Alice guard knows that I'm, I'm doing this to advance the kingdom. They had a partnership together and they had a partnership with God. All of us, we, we have a partnership together that we serve God and serve other people that we too should be willing to empty out our lives, that we have to sacrifice some things so that people can hear the gospel. And the first sacrifice that you need to make is your own life. You need to give it up, give it to God that you have to die to yourself and be born again. We need some people to die so that they can be born into a new creation, that today your old self can be gone and a new creation can be born today. Have you done that? Because grumbling and arguing isn't living your life worthy of the death of Jesus on a cross. Salvation today is the first step to becoming like a star shining in the sky.